You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. together in prayer before we begin our study of God's Word. Father, we do thank you for your Word which is before us, that you have, by your providence, put it in our language that we can understand it, that you have given us your Holy Spirit to illuminate it to us, and that you have provided it for us to satisfy the longings of our soul and to feed and sanctify your people. We thank you for its power. We thank you for what it teaches us of Christ and Our prayer now is that you would open our eyes, that your spirit would be our teacher, that your word would be our guide, and that your glory would be our everlasting concern. Open up the bread of life, we pray to us now in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if your Bible is already open to John 5, or I should say if your Bible falls open to John 5, keep your finger there and flip back to 2 Peter chapter 1, because we're going to be starting in 2 Peter 1, and then we will be going to John 5, which will be our text for this morning. 2 Peter chapter 1. This was our scripture reading this morning. Peter, 2 Peter is, um, holds the place among Peter's letters, and there's only two of them, that 2 Timothy holds among Paul's letters. It was the last of Peter's uh, writings, probably just days or weeks before Peter left this, his earthly dwelling. And he makes that evident in verse 13. I consider it right as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. So Peter knew that his death was coming. He knew it was soon. Um, Probably in prison, persecution of Nero in full swing. Peter knew it was just a matter of time before he was crucified, and he was crucified upside down according to history. But he writes 2 Peter as sort of his, his last epistle. And it's interesting that in both 2 Peter and 2 Timothy, which is Paul's last epistle, that it is in those two books in the New Testament that we have the clearest, most forceful um, presentation of the inspiration of Scripture anywhere in the New Testament. You find it in Second Timothy chapter three: All Scripture is God-breathed and inspired and is profitable. Therefore, preach the word. Second Peter chapter four, or Second Timothy chapter four, verse one. In Second Peter, which is Peter's last epistle. He writes another very forceful teaching on the inspiration of the Scripture. So as Peter's life was coming to an end and he knew that it was imminent, Peter points his readers not to a pope that was to succeed him, not to a council, not to a presiding bunch of bishops, not to personal revelations, not to a still small voice, not to any kind of impression that he would receive, not to any experience for his readers to build their faith on. Peter points his readers to Scripture. Scripture. And you see the the forcefulness of this teaching as Peter uh, contrasts the surety of the Word of God with the uncertainty and unsurety, if you will, of personal experience. So I want you to begin at verse 15. I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure you will be able to call these things to mind. So knowing he's about to die, Peter says, I'm writing to stir you up and to remind you of certain things. And he wants the readers of this letter to not be looking at Peter now as a guide or a rule or a beacon of light, but he wants their focus to be someplace else. You see this begin to sort of take shape in verse 16. We did not follow cleverly devised fables when we made known to you the power 
and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Our faith does not rest on stories handed down from generation to generation by mere men who made this up. Our faith does not rest on myths or fables or genealogies or or just things handed down from people. Our faith, Peter says, rests on something of which I, Peter, personally was an eyewitness. I was an eyewitness of his glory and his majesty. What At what time and at what point was Peter an eyewitness of the glory and the majesty of Christ? Well, you say maybe it was the walking on the water, or perhaps it was the turning loaves and fish into food fit for a multitude, or perhaps it was the healing of this person or the healing of that person, or I know maybe the glory was most magnificently revealed to Peter when Christ raised Lazarus from the dead. Ironically, it is not the healings and it is not the miracles and it was none of the signs that Jesus did that Peter points to that was a, that he was an eyewitness of as far as majesty and glory was concerned. But look what he makes reference to, verse 17. For when he, that is Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made known to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now what event is Peter referring to? He is referring to the event recorded in Matthew chapter 17 that I mentioned last week, the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. The transfiguration. That event where Jesus took Peter, James, and John up onto the mountain, which Peter mentions in verse 18, and we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. He is referring back to that incident where he was up on the holy mountain and Christ was there and he saw Jesus transfigured, that is, he saw the a preview, as it were, of the glory of Christ with James and John. And Peter saw Elijah and Moses speaking to Christ. He saw a preview of the kingdom glory. Almost as if the humanity, the veiling of his glory, was pulled back for a second, a few moments as it were, and Peter got to see something that none of the, that nine of the twelve apostles did not get to see, and that is, the manifest glory of Christ on that mountaintop. What an experience, right? That is an immense experience. There is no experience that can duplicate that. Not the feeding of the 5,000, not the resurrection of Lazarus, nothing else. But to see the humanity of Jesus pulled back and to get a preview of the kingdom glory, what His glory is going to look like when He comes back in flaming fire with His angels from heaven and all of His saints when He returns, to see that glory manifested and to see everything turn white, whiter than whiter than a launderer can make his clothes, and to see that glory manifested, what an experience that is. Well, you might say, you would want to build a whole theology on that experience. You would want to point to that experience and say, this is sure and certain testimony of the glory of Christ. Trust in this experience. But Peter doesn't do that. Look what he does in verse 19. What is more glorious than that experience? But we have the prophetic word made more sure. What is more sure and more certain and more reliable and more trustworthy than an experience of the glory of Christ? What is better than that? What is better than hearing a voice from heaven say, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. What is better than seeing Elijah and Moses speak with the incarnate Son of God and to hear the Father bear audible witness and testimony to His Son. Is there anything better than that? You know what it is? It is the prophetic Word made more sure. This book, this book, 
The prophetic word, and, and by prophetic word, Peter, I think, specifically means the Old Testament, though at the end of the epistle he calls Paul's writing Scripture. Peter has in mind the prophets, the Old Testament, Moses, the law, the Psalms, and the prophets. That's what he's speaking of. That is more sure, more reliable, and more trustworthy, listen, than a audible voice from heaven. Do you believe that? Peter did. I believe it. Yet if you ask Christians, if you poll them today, what would you rather have? Would you rather have God speak to you audibly from heaven so that you can hear it? Or would you rather have just the Old Testament Scriptures? I would be willing to bet you that 95% of those who claim to be believers would say, I would rather have the audible voice than the Old Testament Scriptures. That's what they want is the experience. That's what they want is the audible voice. And most Christians think they hear the audible voice. God said to me this. God told me that. I speak for God. He revealed this to me. You know what? You can take all of the experience, the audible voice, and all of that garbage, the promptings, the nudgings, the still small voice, the hearing from God. You can take all of that and put it in a dumpster. I don't want any of that because I would choose this book over that any day of the week. I don't even believe God speaks to us that way. You know where God has spoken? In His book. And this is more sure than an audible voice from heaven. If I heard an audible voice from heaven, which I never have in my life, if I heard that, I would take Scripture over that any moment of the day, any time, always, and only. Why? Because this is more sure. It's more certain. This is better than the Father audibly speaking from heaven. And if you sort of, if that rubs you raw, then let me just say, you have a, a pathetically low and inadequate view of the written word. A pathetically low and inadequate view of the written word. As great as an experience is, reading the book of Malachi, better. The Psalms, better. The law, better. Moses, better. Job, better. All of it better. Genesis to Revelation, all of that better than an audible voice from heaven. That's Peter's view of Scripture. Peter didn't make that up. You know where he learned that? He learned that from Jesus, who had the same high view of Scripture. I do not think it is possible to have too high of a view of the written Word of God. I don't think it's possible to have that. I don't believe that our view of Scripture is as, is as high as Jesus' view of Scripture, or certainly Peter's view of Scripture. Most Christians point to their experience as things that they build their theology upon, and they've heard God speak, and they've done this, and so they run in their lives by that and not the written Word of God. So if Scripture is more sure, more sure than an audible voice and glory revealed from heaven, any experience that we can have, and you know why it's more sure, by the way? Because you and I can't have that experience. How many of you have ever seen Jesus transfigured before your eyes? None of you have. If you think you have, you were deluded and you saw a demon, is what you saw. None of us have ever seen that. So if if we're going to build our theology on experiences, we can never match Peter's experience, never. But we have something that is more certain and better, more testable, more reliable, more trustworthy than any experience that we could have, no matter how great and glorious, and it is the Word of God. So it should not surprise us then that Jesus would point to the Scriptures as one of the things that testify of Him. And I believe that Jesus has saved this fourth witness for last. And now we're back, turn to John chapter 5. Jesus has saved the fourth witness for last. Four witnesses. And he begins with his weakest foot forward, as it were, which is John the Baptist. And that's saying something, because John the Baptist was not an unreliable witness. He was simply a human witness. He was a prophetic witness. But Jesus says even better and more weightier than John the Baptist is the miracles and the works that I do. That was the second witness. 
And they listened to the John for a while, rejoiced in his life, but ultimately rejected John's message. More weighty than John is the is the miracles, the signs that the Father gave Jesus to do. Jesus did the signs, and they saw the signs. They criticized the signs. They attributed the signs to Satan. But they never did see in the signs the thing that they should have seen, which was an authentication of him as the Son of God. What is even greater than the signs which were given to the Son? Even greater than the signs is the Father and the Father's testimony. Is there anything greater than the Father's testimony? Whether you mean by that an internal testimony or even the audible testimony at the Transfiguration Mount, what is greater than the Father's testimony? What is greater than the audible voice? The written Word of God. And that's where Jesus points them next. And I think that by the Father's testimony, He has in mind specifically the written testimony of Scripture that He begins to talk about in verse 39. So we come now to the fourth of these four witnesses. We've talked about John the Baptist. We've looked at the miracles. We've looked at the at the Father's testimony last week, and now we turn to the witness of the Word, or the witness of the Scriptures. Verse 39, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. We'll stop right there. He points them to the Scriptures. They searched the Scriptures because in them they thought they had eternal life, and these, that is the Scriptures, testify of me, but you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. What were they after in the Scriptures? They were after life, but they were unwilling to come to the Son of God for life. There's something I noticed in this text. I'm surprised it took me this long to find it, but I, 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 um, it kind of dawned on me this last week as I was reading, I think, A.W. Pink's commentary on the Gospel of John. Pink noted that by the time we get to verse 39 and 40, we have now presented to us all three members of the Trinity in these witnesses. Do you realize that? Maybe you saw that already. I didn't notice it until this last week. Who has testified of himself? Jesus testified of himself. His testimony was the first half of this discourse. And then the miracles that he did, he te- those testified of him. Then we have the Father's testimony presented, and now the Scriptures. Well, who inspired the Scriptures? The Holy Spirit inspired the Scriptures, right? It was the Holy Spirit who spoke through men in the writing of the Scriptures. So now, explicitly and implicitly, we have mentioned and presented the testimony of all three members of the Trinity. Jesus testified of himself, the Father has testified of the Son, and the Holy Spirit has testified of the Son through the written revelation of God. Our subject matter today is not a lot different from last week. There's some parallels between verse 38 and 39. You'll notice verse 38, Jesus mentions the Word of God not residing in them. And then he mentions their response to that word, which is, you do not believe him whom you have sent. What is the evidence and the cause of the fact that the word of God does not abide in them? It is that they did not believe. They would not believe. That caused the word of God not to abide in them. And it was also the evidence that the word of God did not abide in them. Then look at verse 39. We have a mention here again of the word of God, the scriptures. And we also have presented to us in verse 40 their response to it, which is, they would not believe. They would not come to Jesus. Because they would not come to Jesus, they could not have life. So sort of some parallels with what we had last week. We're going to notice today, as we look at the witness of the Scriptures, we're going to notice three things. First, an incorrect view of the testimony of the Scriptures. Second, a correct view of the testimony of the Scriptures. And then third, a correct response to the testimony of Scripture. You want evidence that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Look no further than the Word of God. That's where you look. And you can look within Scripture, and it's not a circular circular argument. You can look within Scripture for testimony of the Son of God, that He is who He claimed to be. The Scriptures testify of the Son. So we have an incorrect view of the testimony of Scripture, then a correct view of the testimony of Scripture, and then our correct response in verse 40, which is that we should come to the Son. First notice an incorrect view of the Scriptures, an incorrect view. Verse 39, you search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and it is these that testify of me. 
Now, that's kind of a very interesting statement, and it can be taken one of two ways, and I don't want to lose anybody in this. It can be understood as either an indicative mood or an imperative mood. Indicative or an imperative? And you say, that sounds very complicated. It's really not that complicated. I'm going to explain to you what those two things are. It's either indicative or it's imperative. Now, if you think it's an indicative, and you're, I'm going to explain to you where it's at, because you say, I don't even know if, which camp I'm in. I can almost guarantee that almost everybody over here is in this indicative camp, at least at the first reading of this text. If you're in the indicative camp, then you would agree with probably uh, John MacArthur, William Hendrickson, and uh, uh, some other guys. Over in this camp over here. That's the indicative camp. Here's what the, here's what the indicative mood means. Indicative means that it indicates something that's true of them. It indicates. Indicates indicative. That helps me understand it. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, you search the scriptures. He's describing something that's true of them. These Pharisees. You search the scriptures. And they did. They poured over them. They read them. They counted the number of letters. They knew the number of Hebrew letters in every book of the Old Testament. And they knew the middle letter of every book of the Old Testament. And they knew how many letters after that. And how many letters before that. And they knew how many words were in each book. And they knew what the central word of every book was. And they could talk to you on infinitum ad nauseum about genealogies and lists and things in the Old Testament that you and I read over every year and try and just pass over as fast as we can. They could go on because they knew the minutiae of all of this. And they studied the Scriptures and they knew them and they memorized entire books and whole sections of the Psalter, the Psalms. They searched the Scriptures diligently. So that's that's indicative. You search the Scriptures. And Jesus is saying something that's true of them. You Pharisees, you read through it and you search the Scriptures. Why do they search the Scriptures? Because, Jesus says, you think, and wrongly so, that in the Scriptures, that would be their false view of the Scriptures, that by reading the Scriptures you have eternal life. In other words, the more we study and read and learn about the Scriptures, the more eternal life we gain. There was a famous rabbi of the, of the era, actually just before Jesus' time, named Hillel, who said this, the more study of the law, the more life. If he has gained for himself words of the law, he has gained for himself life in the world to come. In other words, you read the Scripture, and the more you memorize it, the more life you are gaining. It is just in the reading of them that gains one, Eternal life. That would be a false view of the Scriptures. So if it's indicative, Jesus is saying, you search the Scriptures because wrongly you think that just by reading them and by searching them and by studying them, they gain for you eternal life. Now, can the Scriptures gain for us eternal life? If reading the Scripture was all that was necessary for eternal life, Mormons would have eternal life. Jehovah's Witnesses would have eternal life. Everybody who's ever read the Scriptures would have some degree or some measure of eternal life. It is not just reading the Word that gains one eternal life. The Word shows us the way to eternal life. The Word, when embraced and obeyed, points us to Christ who is the means of eternal life. But the Scriptures themselves, in and of themselves, by themselves, do not gain anyone eternal life. So that would be their wrong view of the Scriptures. They thought that just by reading them, they had eternal life. That would be the indicative. So he's just describing something that's true of them. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Up until this last week, that was the, that was the view or the perspective that I had. That was what I thought this was. You search the Scriptures and he's indicating something that's true of them. Upon further study, I've kind of swayed over here to the side that says, I think that this is, should be taken as an imperative. Now listen, whether a verb like search is indicative or imperative depends upon the context. Context always determines that. And the context could be could lend itself either way, because either way makes sense with the context. But the imperative is, is a command. In other words, Jesus is saying this. Go to the book. Search the Scriptures. You will find that if you search them, they bear witness of me. It's a command. What is, what has he been laying out all the way through this? The testimony. 
You have the testimony of John the Baptist. You've heard that. You have the testimony of the works. You have seen them. You have heard the testimony of the Father. His greatest testimony is the Scriptures. Search the Scriptures and you will find that they speak of me. On every page I am there. If you will just open your eyes to see them. But the problem with them was that they had eyes that they did not see and ears that they could not hear and hearts that were hardened. So though they read, they read for the entirely the wrong reason. They read to accomplish their own righteousness, thinking that in reading the Word of God, they were acquiring a righteousness for themselves and gaining eternal life. They had a wrong view of Scripture that they read the Scriptures and memorized the Scriptures to appear righteous before other people as a means to an end, to keep something people oppressed and to keep them ignorant and to, to enforce their own wicked ways upon the people. That was the means to do all of that was the reading of the Scripture. And so what Jesus is doing is not just necessarily saying something that is true of them, but he's saying, you want witness of me? Go to the book. Read the Scriptures. Look at them. On every page they bear witness of me. So what would be the wrong view of Scripture there? It would be reading Scripture for any other purpose other than seeing what it is that it truly reveals, and that is home, the Lord Jesus Christ. These things speak of me. Now, do I think it is an imperative or an indicative? I start off with indicative over here. I got to keep that up. Indicative or imperative? Well, I'm not going to go to the wall for either one of them. And if you put a gun to my head, I would say you're right. Whichever one you think it is. I, I don't know which one. Both of them make sense in the context. I kind of lean to the imperative because I think that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying you need to go to the book and you will find that when you read the book, looking for me, you will find me on every single page. I am all the way through it from Moses all the way through to Malachi. How is it that Jesus was revealed in the pages of scripture? They testified of him. He was everywhere. All the way through the Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi, Jesus was the one that was revealed there. So that's the incorrect view of the testimony of Scripture. Now look at the correct view of the testimony of Scripture. Jesus says, it is these, that is the Scriptures, that testify of me. Those words speak of me. All of the Scriptures, everything that was written from Genesis to Malachi, anticipated him. Everything looked forward to and prepared men for him. You say, what about the genealogies? Because I've read First Chronicles, chapters 1 through 11, 12, and 13, and it's not fun reading because it's like reading the, the North Idaho phone book. It's just a bunch of names. What about the genealogies? How did those prepare men for the Messiah? The genealogies are the inspired record of the lineage of the Messiah so that we would recognize him when he showed up. We knew that it was going to be somebody who was a descendant of Adam. And from Adam, obviously, through Noah. Which of Noah's sons? Shem. Of all of Shem's descendants, which one? Abraham. Abraham had two sons. Which one? Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. Which one? Judah. Judah had a bunch of descendants. Which one? David. Adam, Noah, Shem, Abraham, Jacob, Judah, David, all the way down. The genealogy is there to prepare us and to open our eyes to the Messiah. And if you open your eyes, you'll see him on every page, all over the place. All over the place. This is how the apostles preached, by the way. Do you know they preached Christ and you know what they preached it from? Not the book of 1 Corinthians. Not Second Peter. Not the book of John. Those books weren't written. When the apostles preached, they preached Christ from the Old Testament. When the apostles opened up their Old Testament, they saw Jesus as much in their Old Testament as you and I see Him in our New Testament. And they could go to any prophet, any psalm, and they could preach Christ from there because they knew that He was revealed in some way in all of the passages of the Old Testament. That is why Jesus, after His resurrection on the road to Demaeus, when He encountered those two disciples who were downcast and distraught, he said to them in Luke 24:25, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for Christ to suffer these things and then to enter into his glory? 
And then Luke says, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. He just began to exposit the Old Testament to them. Starting in the book of Genesis with Moses and working his way through the Psalms and the prophets. And I imagine that he stopped in Isaiah 53 and Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah chapter 9, and Psalm 22 and Psalm 23 and Psalm 24. And Genesis and all of the feasts and the festivals and the sacrifices and the Passover lamb and everything. Just showing himself in all of the scriptures. That's how Jesus convinced them of what the scripture said. In Luke, in, sorry, in the book of Acts, Peter, and I'm going to give you a bunch of references now to how the apostles viewed the Old Testament scriptures and their revelation of Christ. Acts chapter 3, Peter in the temple said to the crowd that was gathered there, the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. In Acts chapter 3, verse 25, Peter says, and likewise all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward announced these days. Acts 7.52, Stephen, standing before his persecutors, said, Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who were more righteous. Uh, They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. In Acts 10, Peter said to Cornelius, Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Acts 13.29 says, When they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down off the cross and laid him into tomb. That was Paul's preaching. And then Paul says in Acts 26.22, So having obtained help from God, I stand to this day, testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place. Acts 28.23, Acts is the record of the preaching and the expansion of the church in the early in the first 30 years of the church's history. And the book ends with this, When they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers, and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning until evening. How did the apostles preach? They opened up their Old Testament and they said, here's Jesus. He's all over the place. How is it that the Old Testament witnessed to Christ? Three ways, and J.C. Ryle suggests these, and I'll share them with you. First, generally, generally, in that all of the Old Testament really, though inspired by the Spirit of God, is itself the voice and the Word of God. And since Jesus Christ is God, the Old Testament is His Word. The Old Testament is the Word and testimony of the Father. It is the self-revelation of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit, but it is Christ's Word, just as much as the New Testament is, and just as much as the red letters are, by the way. Just as much as the red letters, the black letters. Don't skip over the black letters and just read the red letters. All of it is the Word of Christ. Generally, second, in what we call types, shadows, and pictures, and this is where it gets very, very dangerous, types, shadows, and pictures. If you're not careful with types, shadows, and pictures, you can very quickly land in Harold Camping Land. Over here where you see things that God never saw in the text of Scripture, where the Holy Spirit never intended anybody to ever see it in the text of Scripture. And if anybody ever comes up to you and say, man, I don't think anybody in the world has ever seen this before me. Let me show you this. There is a reason why nobody has ever seen it before them. Types and shadows and pictures can be very dangerous. So I think the guide is that we say whatever the New Testament writers say pointed to Christ or is a picture of Christ, a type or a shadow of Christ, That is a picture, a type, or shadow of Christ. And if the New Testament does not confirm it, I say zip your pie hole. Just keep it shut because you have no idea whether or not it is really a type of Christ or not. So let me give you some things that the New Testament does say are types or pictures of Christ. The Passover lamb. He is the Passover lamb. He is the ark, by the way. The ark in which all who find safety in him are saved from the judgment that is to come. 
He is the stone in the wilderness that gave water to the children of Israel. He is the cloud. He is the pillar. He is the tabernacle that dwelt among men. He is all of the sacrifices. All of the sacrifices of the Old Testament speak in some way of Christ. All of the feasts and the festivals and the ceremonies and the ceremonial law, all of it point to Christ. That is why in Him, all of that is fulfilled and you and I don't need to observe any of it anymore. The Sabbath pointed to Christ and was a picture of Him and was intended to foretell of our rest in Him, our rest from our own works of righteousness. He is the bread, the manna that came down out of heaven. John 6 says that. He is the good shepherd of Psalm 23. John 10 says that. He is the one that Isaiah saw high and lifted up and in the temple. And the train of His glory filled the temple. And all of the seraphim and the cherubim gathered around Him and sang to Him, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty. That's Jesus according to John chapter 12. So He is all of the types and all of the shadows and all of the pictures and everything of the Old Testament, everything that the children of Israel went through and did was intended to either directly reveal Christ or to prepare them for Him. So generally, in the types and the shadows, in the third way that the Old Testament shows Christ on every page, is in the prophecies. He will be born of a virgin. He will be born in Bethlehem. He will be betrayed by a friend. He will be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. He will be hung on a cross. He will be pierced. He will be buried with the rich man. He will be Buried with other people who are wicked. He would die. He would suffer. Isaiah 53, Micah chapter 5. He is the one upon whom when he comes back, the Jews will look upon him whom they have pierced and mourn as one mourns for his only son. All of those prophecies, all of the direct prophecies, Psalm 22, all of it portrayed him. All of the details about the suffering of the Messiah and the second coming of the Messiah and the first coming of the Messiah and what he will do when he comes back and the kingdom that he will establish, all of that, all of that speaks of him. So generally speaking, the Old Testament is His Word. It's seen in the types and in the shadows. And third, it is seen in the direct prophecies of the coming of the Son of God. So read it. I hope you don't neglect the Old Testament. Just because you're a Christian you're under the New Covenant doesn't mean you should neclect the Old Covenant or neglect the Old Testament. That's what the co- old, old Testament means, Old Covenant. doesn't mean you should uh, 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 neglect the Old Covenant Scriptures. You ought to. And friends, the Old Testament should mean more to you since you know the fulfillment than they did to any Jew who lived prior to Christ. You ought to be able to see Christ all the way through it and say, this shows me about Him. This tells me about Him. This prepares me for Him. I see here the will and the person and the nature and the plan and the purpose of God revealed to me all the way through the Old Testament text. It all speaks of Christ. And that is the correct view of Scripture. And listen, if you read Scripture for any other purpose than to come to know Christ then you're reading Scripture for the wrong reason. When you crack open the book of Genesis, your prayer should be, God, show me Jesus in this book. Show me what it is that was preparing for your plan of redemption, which culminates in your Son, so that you see how the Old Testament unfolded to prepare us and to plan us to receive Christ. That's a correct view of Scripture. Now, third, a correct response. The correct response to Scripture. Verse 40. They search the Scriptures, or you're told to search the Scriptures, because in them they thought you'd have eternal life, but we are to search the Scriptures because they testify of Christ. Verse 40, here's the response to the testimony of Scripture. You are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. Now, actually, that's the incorrect response, right? Being unwilling, but we are told there what the willing, or what the the correct response is, and that is to be willing to come to Christ. Why were the Old Testament texts given? When we search the Scriptures, the correct response to it should be to say, I see Him, and I will come to Him. And all who come to Him, He will receive. 
That's the invitation of Scriptures. All who come to Him, He will receive. The correct response is to come to Christ. To see in Him the fulfillment of all that God had planned and purposed in the Old Testament. And to see in Him the culmination of the entire plan of God. And then to come. But they were unwilling to come. Unwilling to come. I love this verse. You are unwilling to come so that you may have life. Now what does that tell you about their spiritual condition? They were dead. Because all who are unwilling to come and do not come to Him and are not found in Him are spiritually dead. Not spiritually sick. Spiritually dead. They were dead. And as long as they remained separated from Christ, they would remain dead and they would eventually die dead and die dying dead for all of eternity. They would be dead. Spiritually speaking. The only way that they could have life is if they would come to the Son. And here's the glorious, wonderful promise of Scripture. All who come, He will receive. All. Everyone who beholds the Son and comes to the Son gets life. Jesus would have been willing, if they had repented and turned from their sin, to embrace all of those men standing there listening to Him that day. Any one of them who had come, He would have embraced and received and given life to. But what was the problem? They were unwilling to come. They did not will it. They did not want it. Their will said no, because they were unwilling to come, and they willingly refused to come. And because they did not will to come, they would never come. And also, by the way, because they would not will to come, they could not come. Does this make sense? John 6.44 says that nobody can come, that people lack the ability to come. Why is it that these men could not come? They could not come because they were unwilling to come. And because they were unwilling, they were unable. You and I would say of somebody who is absolutely unwilling to tell the truth, we would rightly say of him, he is unable to tell the truth. Because by that, what we mean is, man always does what he wills to do. Whatever man wills to do, he does. If he didn't will to do it, he wouldn't do it. But he wills and desires to do it, and so he does it. And all that man wills to do, he does. And everything he does, he at some point wills and desires to do. But a man who is an inveterate liar, who wills to lie and chooses to lie, and is absolutely unwilling to tell the truth, is at the same time unable to tell the truth. He is unable to tell the truth because he wills not tell the truth, will not tell the truth, and he doesn't will to tell the truth. And because he doesn't will to tell the truth, he will never tell the truth. Because he's unable to tell the truth. You will never find somebody who is willing to come to Christ, but lacks the ability to come to Christ. You will never find somebody who says, Oh, I long to repent. I desire holiness. I want to come to Christ for salvation. I just can't. You'll never find that. Nor will you ever find somebody who is unwilling, but has the ability to. Because their unwillingness keeps them locked in their sin. The problem with this man is that they were unwilling to come to the Son. Does man have a will? Oh, you bet he has a will. You bet he has a will. That's not your glory, by the way. That is your shame. That is man's ruination. People like to trumpet the free will of man. Man has a will. He can do what he wants. We ought to be glorified because we have a will. It is their will that would damn them. It was my will that would damn me for all of eternity because I was unwilling to come. Something had to happen to make me willing. My will had to be changed because man, without a sovereign work of the Spirit of God, who is efficacious and gracious and loving, will not come. Why doesn't he will to come? A few different reasons. Man doesn't see his need for a Savior. These men didn't see their need for a Savior. 
These men didn't think they needed somebody else's righteousness. They thought they were righteous in and of themselves. They didn't think they needed to come to him, so they wouldn't come. They were unwilling to come. Listen, have you ever gone into a doctor and had the doctor say, um, look, you're, you're as healthy as a horse. All the tests show that your blood tests are good, your heart is good, it's beating perfectly, a perfect rhythm, everything, your blood's flowing, you're just as healthy as a horse. Don't even come back and see me for another five years. And you walk out of there and say, I think I'm going to go schedule me an open heart surgery. You ever done that? No, you haven't done that because you're not a fool. You're not a rube. You would never do such a thing. Why? You would never go have a radical surgery if you didn't perceive your own need for the surgery. But when you go into the doctor and he says, look, all, every artery to your heart, everything that connects to your heart is 95% blocked. And you probably won't even get to the car before you collapse and die of a massive stroke or a heart attack or something like that. You're not going to live 24 hours. You would say, give me the surgery, right? Once you are convinced of the need for the surgery, then you are willing to have the surgery done. These men are not willing to come to Christ because they do not perceive their need of him. Another reason people don't come to Christ is because they do not desire what Christ offers. What does he offer? Humility, repentance, purity, chastity, freedom from sin, freedom from gossip, freedom from lying, a repentance and humbling from all of that stuff. That's what he demands and that's what he offers. Have you ever met an unregenerate person who says, you know what, I really desire to be morally upright, righteous, sober, pure in thought, word, and action. I really desire righteousness. Unbelievers don't desire righteousness. Unbelievers are not willing to come to the Son because they have no taste whatsoever for what it is that the Son offers. And so they do exactly what they want to do, which is sin. And they love sin. Unbelievers don't love righteousness. They love sin. What keeps men locked in unbelief is not a, not a lack of evidence. It is what? A love for darkness. We've seen that over and over through this. It is not a lack of evidence. It is a love for darkness. The condemnation is this, that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And they love the iniquitous and they love idolatry and they love immorality and they love impurity and they love alcohol and they love drink and they love licentiousness and they love living that way. And because they love living that way, they're not willing to come to Jesus. They don't want it. They don't desire it. Another reason is pride. As Charles Spurgeon said, the gate of heaven is a bit too low for the proud. And they don't like to stoop to get in. Because getting into the kingdom of heaven requires that we humble ourselves and say, you know what? I died in myself. I hate my iniquity. I hate my sin. I'm turning from all of that. I repent. I bow down. I will become the slave of another individual, namely Jesus Christ. That requires a tremendous amount of humility. So it's pride. What kept these men in unbelief, friends? It was not in any way, it was not in any way the weight of their sin. It was not because they had too many sins to be forgiven. Because all manner of sin can be forgiven. God, God saved the chief of sinners as an example to all those who would believe on him afterward. He saved a, one who was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. He saved one like the Apostle Paul. It's not because they had too many sins that they couldn't be forgiven for their sins. That's not what kept them shut out of the kingdom of heaven. And what kept them shut out from the kingdom of heaven was not a lack of God's love for them. He loved them. He loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes on him might have eternal life. God's love for uh, all men is so immense and so deep and so profound that you and I can't even fathom that love. Imagine what his love is for his people, his bride, the church, and his sheep. But his love for all men is so, so immense. It was not due to a lack in God's love that men do not come to him. Nor is it due to a lack in the sufficiency of Christ's work on the cross. His work is sufficient and has provided enough to forgive every sin if that were the intention of the Father. It wasn't. But it is unlimited in His power and He is able to save to the uttermost all those who will come to Him. All of them. It's no lack in what Christ did on the cross. If everybody in the world was saved, He wouldn't have had to suffer one moment more than He did. 
What he did was pour out a ransom price sufficient to forgive the sins of all men. It was not because his power, his cross lacks the power to save or the ability to save or the efficaciousness to save. It's not due to that. Nor is the, are the lost lost because of any lack in the offer of the gospel. The gospel goes out to every creature, to all men. God has commanded all men everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. It is no lack in the love of God, no lack in the offer of the gospel, no lack in the work of Christ on the cross, and no lack whatsoever in God's ability to forgive sin that keeps unbelievers out. What is it? They're unwilling. They're unwilling. That's it. If you are lost, your ruination is entirely your own work. If you are saved, your salvation is entirely His work. And there's no middle ground. Your ruination is due, the ruination of a lost person is due entirely to the fact that they will not be saved. They do not desire it and they will not turn. And it is not a lack of evidence. It is a love for darkness. And they lack the will to change. The lost are lost because they lack the will to change. You know what we need? We need the Spirit of God to so work upon the heart as to make Christ precious so that we come and that we are drawn by Him and that our hearts are changed by Him so that what we once hated, we now love. And what we once loved, we now hate. That is what salvation is. Your ruination is due entirely to your own will. Your salvation is due entirely to His will. And there is no middle ground. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You that You have so loved us and so worked upon those who are Yours to draw us to Your Son. Thank You for Your precious Gospel and a precious salvation. And we thank You, O God, that You have used Your Word to open our eyes to Christ and that we have been born again by the Word of God and by the working of the Spirit of God who came with power upon our hearts and upon our wills. We thank You that You have changed our wills and that You have changed us for Your glory and Your glory alone. In Christ's name, Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.